This week on Hacker and the Fed, we talk about what email security should look like for the next 12 months, who can really read your email, and law enforcement is busting people using DDoS for hire. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informants. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hey, Hector, how's it going? Pretty good, my friend. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. So, hey, have you been watching any of these basketball games, the college basketball March Madness? A little bit. I'll be honest with you. I've been I've been busy the last few weeks just traveling and so on. I haven't had a chance. Uh, okay, well, I, it's something that was picking at me that I kept seeing is there's a commercial in there for the Buick Envoy mm. um, or Buick Envision or one of those. I don't know, some sort of Buick. And it's a, it's a woman and she gets in the car and like her alter ego, which also herself gets in the car. And one of the last things she says is, uh, hey, what's your Wi-Fi password? Because I guess the car has a Wi-Fi in it. <laughs> and the Wi-Fi password was the name of the car, the Buick Envision. And it really upset me how poor this this password was and it comes on every single uh commercial but let me ask you buick envision if that was the full password do you think that's a bad password or do you think it's long enough especially (laughs) for a car well it depends right i mean now that we know the password is buick envision i'm pretty sure anyone that sees a buick envision on the road is going to try to access the wi-fi uh with that password but no, it's it's not a strong password. It has very low entropy. It's just two words together. There's no. Uh, I'm assuming there's no meta characters or anything else. So, yeah, I'd assume so too. But let me ask you this: let's let's add physicality into that thing. So, if the Wi-Fi is only running while the car is going down the road, you pretty much have to be behind it or somewhere near it for the entire time to try to brute force the password, right? Yeah, you would have to be next to the vehicle within its range. Or Wi-Fi range, rather. So, and I think maybe they've, they've taken that into consideration. Like, what's maybe. the what's what's the realistic risk to one having a Wi-Fi on board and two having a password like Buick Envision? Well, it may just be a stupid advertisement where you know non-security guys thought of you know oh well, it's another way to plug the cars to to make it the password too. So I don't know. It just kept coming on every commercial, and every time a weak password shows up, the nerd in me comes out, and I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, it reminds me of a project I did a couple of years ago. I think it's two years now, where um, I was I was kind of hired to do a commercial. And we recorded this whole segment and had this whole project in mind where during March Madness, they would release a payload, kind of like a malware sample. And uh, the idea was that folks would go to the website for the company and download the malware sample and get like free ads for like free products. The problem with that is that it was right around the start of COVID. And so there was like a marketing panic and a legal panic. Like, no, I don't think this is a good idea to release a virus during this, you know, these times, right? So, yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, March Madness always has those kind of, kind of gimmicky commercials or whatever, which are fun. And I guess it kind of ties to this. Like, what's what's the odds of uh, of someone actually driving around a Buick Envision with Buick Envision as his Wi-Fi password? <laughs> I think you're right, though. I think a lot of people are going to try it, though, after seeing those, those commercials. Well, think about it like this. Now, if attackers are aware that there are vehicles riding on a road with Wi-Fi enabled, one, and two, uh, potentially guessable passwords. All you really have to do is go to a major highway and set up like a listener device that sits there and automatically tries to connect to these networks and collect information about the network while it's within range. 
kind of like a reverse war, uh, war dialing. Or not war dialing, but war driving, sorry. Now, what information could they pick up uh, during the, that brief, you know, five seconds? I have no idea. Maybe MAC addresses, maybe um, some details about the local network. If there are services running on that local network that could be hacked, perhaps. Yeah, so it, it's definitely interesting to think about. And I'm sure we're going to see more of that moving forward. Someone could also use it maybe to follow the vehicle based on signal strength. That's right. It, it reminds me of, um, for, for, for those of you uh, uh, car hacker nerds in the audience, I know that uh, in some states, uh, some towns, they have these devices connected on the roads. They use something called V2X or VX2. It's some protocol for car-to-car or, or automotive communications. And I know there were some security uh, concerns regarding that protocol and what kind of devices or cars would actually have those devices enabled. But the idea is that you could literally track vehicles as they're going through highways or, or, or specific towns. And I'm not really sure what the ultimate win was going to be, whether it was going to be for like monitoring traffic or for tracking purposes. But that was something that I looked into several years ago. I was kind of uh, intrigued to see who would actually deploy it. Hmm, that is interesting. But enough of the nerd stuff, man. What's up with you, brother? How's Naxo? How's, how's the business going? Naxo's going good. We're having a lot of good work come in. Uh, it's surprisingly, a new type of work's coming in. Um, the sort of our forensic work is kind of taken off, you know, so it's, it's good for us. You know, looking through, you know, computer images and making computer images and cell phones, you know, it, it, it's it's good. We offer a sort of thing where it's it's not like the the cheap vendor. It's it's you know FBI quality forensic work, uh, but at a reduced rate. So it's it's it, it, the work's really picking up, and so it's good. It's good for us. No, that's great. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I I was on a phone call with a client, and they just so happened to be listeners of the podcast, which I'm I'm very stoked about. And they were like, "So uh, I, I know what you do. Uh, what exactly does Naxo do?" And the best explanation I could give him, I was like, well, I, I, I look at Naxo kind of like a private FBI, you know, where, you know, they're able, they'll be able to help you investigate, you know, certain things or maybe do forensic work or incident response work. Or there's a lot of things that they can do for you that um, as an organization, you may not want, you know, like an agency or a bureau coming in and traveling across the network. You could actually engage Naxo prior to engaging law enforcement or something like that but that, that, that was the best i could do at the moment it was kind of like a like a, a surprise question for me well that's a good pitch i appreciate it yeah we do that we do you know crypto investigations crypto recovery uh we also do a little bit of you know work well not a little bit we do a lot of work for government law enforcement agencies helping them with investigations so you know it's good Nexo's good and uh you know i uh, thanks for asking i appreciate it So, Hector, I do have to say, the last time we were on a podcast, you know, uh, well, I won the bet from the Super Bowl. And uh, if I was to lose the bet, I would have to tell a story about the time I pissed my pants on uh, on a search site. Um, <laughs> yes. So we have received a ton of emails, including an email that just came in while we we're recording this, another one. Uh, so I think I'm going to have to tell that story at the end of the end of this podcast. I think I owe it to the audience because uh, uh, I, we asked for, you know, listeners to write in and they have certainly been blowing up uh, questions at hacker in the um, asking for the story. So uh, we'll share it at the end. Honestly, I've been, I've been kind of waiting for that to happen. I'm glad the audience uh, got involved and, and kind of forced the situation upon you. So that's really good. It's always interesting to hear the perspective from law enforcement or, or an officer in law when they're going through stuff like that. It, it's kind of like a reminder that, yeah, you're, you guys are human. So I would love to hear the story. Now I have to go back and just do an investigation into the headers of all those emails and see if they really was you. <laughs> they're all coming from your IP address, you bastard. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I, I, no comment on that. <laughs> all right, well, I, I, I won't look. I'm better off not knowing. The first story we're going to get into you sent over to me was, uh, it's a good one. Um, it was, the title of it is Email Security Nightmare as 75% of CISOs expect a severe email-borne attack in the next 12 months. It's a really interesting story that sort of breaks down, um, you know, what the CISOs out there are feeling is going to be the next wave of cyber attacks in, over the next 12 months. Yeah, it's a great story. I mean, as someone that does uh, red team engagements, uh, mostly on the offensive side, 
Uh, social engineering is a big part of uh, our modus operandi, our toolkit. The one thing that I see a lot, and we're going to go into the details for this article shortly, is that an organization might purchase uh, a Mimecast or a Proofpoint, which are both fantastic uh, services, or they may just sign up for uh, a service like Microsoft Online or Exchange Online and not really configure it in a way that's effective. And so you still see social engineering campaigns that target those organizations that are at least somewhat successful. Um, so this is a great topic. I myself have been successful in circumventing some of these controls, and hopefully we can kind of go into some of that here. Yeah, no, we've said it 100 times on the podcast that you can't just buy a plug-and-pay solution. Uh, that the configuration is the, the, the most important part of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and those two solution, email solutions are great. So, again, this is a, a report from Mimecast, um, that, who, like Hector said, is an email security company, and it's the state of email security of, of 2023. And so, like I said at the beginning with the title, three-quarters of the organizations that participated in the, the survey are worried about an email-borne cyber attack. 82% of those organizations have seen a reported increase in email usage over the last year. Um, and some of their biggest concerns are the attacks are phishing, ransomware, and spoofing. Can you get kind of explain spoofing, Hector? Yeah, it's it's a fantastic topic. I, I like I like the kind of talking about spoofing because a lot of organizations aren't aware are unaware that it's still very much a thing. And let's kind of go into what that looks like from the attacker's perspective. So, if you're targeting an organization, whether it's directly, let's say it's Contoso.com, right? That's the Microsoft example um, company. And so you see that in regards to like the email security, they might have Mimecast, they might have Proofpoint, they might have a Barracuda or whatever, but they do not have a valid DMARC record. They do have a valid SPF record, but not a DMARC. So DMARC stands for Domain-Based Message Authentication, Reporting, and Conformance, or DMARC. Um, it is uh, kind of like an authentication protocol. And uh, we're kind of going to get, go into authentication versus authorization shortly. But... What DMARC basically does is it acts as a DNS record. It, it, it's a DNS record that you would attach to your domain. If an email comes in from your domain to, let's say, a provider like a Google Workspace, what Gmail will do is it'll look up the email headers, it'll look up your domain, and then it'll do a, a DMARC lookup, which is basically a DNS lookup. It'll look for the existence of the record. If the record does not exist then it will say, okay, cool. Well, you know, we're just going to let the email through, you know, whether or not it may be a spam or a spoof, we're just going to let it be. Now, Gmail in the recent years have automatically moved those kind of emails into, um, you know, either the, either the inbox or this other indicators, it'll move it into the spam folder. So for some of you guys in the audience that have a legitimate business and you're emailing clients and the clients are telling you, hey, I found your email in my uh, spam folder, and their email is to say Gmail, then it's possible that you're missing a DMARC record. You, you want to look into that. There's all the variables, but that could be one. So the DMARC is just there to uh, say that it came from Hector. It came from Hector's company, his domain that owns this thing. This email really did come from there. Yeah, absolutely. It's basically authenticating the domain. It's quite effective. But here's the problem with DMARC. DMARC is something that you have to configure over time. There are services online that allow you to create a DMARC, maybe um, through a third-party service. They'll help you monitor which emails um, you know, are, are, are being sent on your behalf. And they could tell you whether or not emails that you're sending are, are not properly being authenticated with your DMARC record. And from there, you're able to kind of configure your email settings to make sure the emails are being uh, authenticated and they're valid and they're getting through the inboxes. If you set up a DMARC record right now, as is, and you and your organization is pushing out, you know, 100,000 emails a week or a month through different services, not just your inbox or not just your, your email client, let's say you're doing mailing campaigns, news, newsletters, et cetera, you may be getting blocked at some point. So you want to make sure that you just don't set a DMARC record with a policy of reject, okay, right off the bat at least. You want to do some, some effort or put some effort into it. Now... Once you have a valid DMARC record set, you feel pretty confident that your email uh, configuration is proper, then as you're sending email out to services, um, 
those services have something called an MX or a mail exchange. Those mail exchange servers, again, will do what Google does. It'll look at the headers, look at the DNS record. It'll do a lookup of the DNS record, look at the configuration of your DMARC record. And then it'll say, okay, this email from this person is authenticated. Pass it right through the inbox. Okay, great. Now, the flip side of that, if you're completely missing a DMARC record, then it's possible for an adversary, a bad guy, a bad actor, to spoof emails from your domain. And depending on where their targets are in terms of service, where they're hosted at, those emails, one, will look legitimate, and two, they'll make it to the inbox. Okay? That's a major concern for organizations, or it should be. Now, when we start looking at the numbers here, 88% of organizations intend to use DMARC, but only about 27% of those organizations actually deploy a record. I was shocked by that. Oh, yeah. Well, I wish I could say the same, but I'm actually seeing it. Even with you know Fortune 500 companies, I'm seeing that some of these organizations, they may have a DMARC record in place, but they have no policy set. So since there's no policy set, spoofed emails will still be delivered on their behalf. So if only 27% of companies or organizations are using it, it's got to be expensive, right? No, it's not. It takes a couple minutes to set up. I set you up there. That was a, that was a setup question. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry, sorry, you didn't get it. <laughs> My bad. But, but all, all jokes aside, it, it takes a few minutes to set up. You, know, you do require that whoever's running your DNS or whoever's running your email, you know, whether someone in IT or even if you have a marketing person that's running your campaigns – you want to make sure they understand, one, the concept of DMARC, two, how to deploy it, and three, to monitor those, you know, those daily or weekly uh, uh, archives that you get from, from these, different, these different mail providers. Because they will send you an email saying, okay, we received you know, X amount of emails from your organization, three were rejected as invalid, and the rest were valid, right? You know, so it, it definitely takes a bit of effort to set it up properly. But you can run DMARC even if you're not running your own email server, right? Yeah, if you own your domain, yeah, then you can set up a DMARC record, and that that's that's pretty seamless. If you set up your domain to like Google Workspace or Google Domains and other services, they tend to automatically um, populate the DMARC record for you, but always double check and confirm. You're seeing on on the clients on your side. Why so low numbers on people keeping up with this? Well, I would say that uh, a part of it is that the people that are in charge of email and DNS don't really know what DMARC is, or they don't know how to properly deploy a DMARC record um, or policy, right? And so because of that, it kind of flies under the radar until a phishing campaign starts that's using their their domain for spoofing, um, and by then it's already too late. So there's and, and the one thing I'll say is that DMARC is very important for dealing with spoofing issues, um, but it's not the only tool that's part of your arsenal. You also have SPF records. You have SPF that you know also plays a big part in um, in, in helping mitigate potential email fraud. And SPF stands for um, Sender Policy Framework. And with an SPF record, you could define which IP addresses are allowed to send emails from the domain. Okay. So now you have a DMARC record set with a, a reject policy. Now you have an SPF record set that defines the IPs that can send emails from your domain. But there's also one other item, and that is DKIM. And DKIM allows uh, an organization to sign or verify messages that are being sent from a domain. So DKIM, for those in the audience that don't know, uh, stands for Domain Keys Identified Email or Identified Mail. So if you were to look at DMARC as authentication, you would look at DKIM as uh, authorization. And then you would look at SPF as maybe access control, but that's that's pushing it. If you were to have an organization that you can set up all three policies properly, then the concept of email spoofing would be uh, at most academic for your organization. I was also surprised that uh, spoofing, you know, being on the rise, that government agencies and the public institutions are the most attempted spoof targets. I would have thought they would have had a, a grip on all this stuff. I mean, the government's been running their own domains for, for quite some time. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is a problem. I can't give you exact stats on government agencies uh, or government domains, yeah. at least not from the top of my head. But I know what? from... You can't? No, I can't. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't. But for the most part, when it comes down to corporations and, and private businesses, I've seen that that 27% number that pr- was provided by Mindcast is, is not entirely wrong. It's on par. The article went on to talk about this. There's a new attack surface, the, the collaboration tools, you know, the stuff like Microsoft Teams and Workspace and Slack. The, the Most of the security leaders, they're not satisfied with the security measures that, that come along with these tools. Is that something that we think is going to see either the attacks are going to go up in, in that area? Or do you think uh, someone's going to step up and start securing these things? Yeah. I mean, look, this is why we have a bunch of new companies and old companies that have been around that are focusing on SaaS security. It, it's fantastic to see some of the products. I've, I've demoed a bunch of them. You know, it, it's, it's fantastic what they're doing. And I kind of explained to you what that is. So when you start to, as an organization, as you start to expand your attack surface and you're including Salesforce and Slack or Microsoft Teams, you might have GitHub or GitHub Enterprise or whatever, um, you're basically using these services as a SaaS or software as a service. And most of these services are, are kind of interconnecting with your organization over API or some other integration, whether it's OAuth or whatever. But the, the key point, and we've talked about this before, um, there's API involved. So you have a few companies out there like Rico AI or Obsidian Security. What they do is they've developed platforms that will also integrate with your organization. They'll then look at your SaaS integrations and start to do a security audit of those services. And I'll give you a great example. It wasn't what, maybe, you know, five, six episodes ago, we did a, we had a conversation about the Department of Interior and they found that anywhere between 21% and 30% of former employees still had active, active directory accounts uh, within some of these bureaus or agencies. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So imagine a scenario where you fire 100,000 tech employees, which we've seen recently, and, um, you know, 21% of those people uh, have access to, you know, some sort of service, whether Slack or, or some other SaaS uh, product. So using the tools that I mentioned already, you could then identify former employees that still have access to certain services, and you could actually monitor when they're trying to access or actually are logging into those accounts. Um, so yeah, we're going to see more of that taking place. And I just want to say for the security leaders out there, there are tools that would help you identify potential attack vectors here. It's just that you got to go out there. You got to re- you got to find them. You know? Yeah, I think some of these people are bitching and moaning because they don't come with the uh, the, the collaboration tools. They want security baked in, and you know, I think so a lot of these tools were just a quick reaction to the change of the workforce during COVID didn't bake in the security into it. They just needed to get it out there fast because, you know, we went from going into the office to no one going to the office overnight, literally overnight. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you know, let's, let's keep it real. Let's keep it honest. Um, I think that, you know, some, some of these services, they wanted, some of these companies created these products for a singular purpose, but we just want to create, we want to be able to provide collaborative access or teams or chat we want to be able to provide email. We want to be able to provide this, that, and the other. But security could be an add-on, right? And they're probably looking at it as, as that. We've seen that from Microsoft. They'll, they'll build products, and then six months later, they'll come out with a product that's a security addition to that other product. Uh, a good example would be if you sign up today for, like, Microsoft Exchange or Office 365. Uh, yeah, you'll get their their protections, the the security services and, 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 and inline scanning that they do. But if you want additional security... You can also sign up for and get licenses for their ATP service, their advanced threat protection. Then you can also add to Exchange Online protection, which you can also add to your email services. And what that will do is not only will you also have the anti-spam and anti-phishing technologies, but now you're getting archive scanning and, and, and link scanning, which could you know be very important for organizations. So I think that a lot of these companies, a lot of these products are good as is, but um you know, it kind of makes sense why you have these other like, companies I mentioned before providing kind of add-ons to these services, right? Um, and I get it. As a security leader, if I have a limited budget, I would hope that there's some sort of audit log 
or something that I could use to kind of identify potential issues rather than having to pay for yet another addition, right? There were some more positive numbers coming out, though, especially about security teams expanding. Um, organizations with 250 to 500 people, nearly half had six to eight security workers, and over a third had 11 to 30 full-time security employees. Now, I hope those numbers are right. Um, I, I do hope cybersecurity is growing. Um, there's a lot of you know stuff open. I hope it isn't just IT guys that who also wear a security hat. And these numbers are reported that way. I hope they're actual security guys because you and I have talked many times about the difference between IT and, you know, IT wants to provide that data and make data available and make access to everything. You know, sure. Security is a different mindset. You, I don't think IT guys can also be security guys at the same time. It's, it's two different hats. Yeah, it is 100%. And I've seen that a lot. I've seen a lot of security engineers who came from IT, who came from, the you know, help desk to support and so on. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that they're making that move, but, you know, it will require additional training. They need to understand security concepts. And the one thing I tell organizations, and I had a great call last week with a client that wanted to kind of build their own offensive team. And they were asking about different tools. Like, hey, what do you think about X and Y and Z? And like, yeah, these are all great tools, but who's running it? Who's managing it? Who's looking at the logs? Who's, who's who's actually seeing what's coming back and interpreting it? Yeah, it's it's a big part. Oh yeah, and, you know it, it's it, it becomes more difficult, more complex the deeper you go into creating your security program. And I, I'm hopeful that at some point you and I could do more on that front. Maybe uh, you put together some content on what uh, creating a, a mature security program might look like for some of these organizations. Yeah. The last part that came out of this, I'd love to know what your feelings are on this. Ninety-two uh, percent of CISOs use, are using or planning to use uh, AI or artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning technologies for cybersecurity. Is this just a hot word that people are using? I mean, is is AI and machine learning for security purposes? Is it ready? It can be. It all depends on how you use it. Yeah. Uh, I saw many great Twitter threads from Infosec Twitter where people showed how they could create very, very good-looking phishing emails or email templates, you know, based off of, like, ChatGPT. You could use the same technology. I've seen at least one project that aims to, to detect GPT-style, you know, uh, uh, texts. I'm not sure how effective that is. I have to do more research into that field. But it would be possible to use AI or ML for that. It's just, you know, the one thing I'll, I'll let folks know right now, it's not going to be 100%. And you may have to, if, if, if you end up using a tool that incorporates AI or ML, you know, you, you might have to company with other tools, right? It's not going to be a, a one-off solution. And it's one thing I'll, I'll kind of point out for the audience. I promise you that Google and Microsoft and all the other vendors are already looking to incorporate AI and ML for, you know, dealing with emails and detection. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's just like, cloud of five years ago it's just that's what people are looking for to hear these words and not really understanding them so yeah I, I know i'm a little worried about ai and ml and just just leaning on those and not having actual professionals you know look through the stuff but we'll see we'll see how that plays out yeah we're, you're, we're still always going to need a peer of eyes right there's always going to need there's always going to be a need for some sort of validation for example there are some great tools out there right now to do continuous pen testing or continuous red team work. I've seen that plenty of times. I myself am, am in that field. Even the big boys, right? Even the big companies will tell you, yeah, we've created a hell of a product and it works very freaking amazing, but you still need somebody somewhere to take a look at the results. Yeah, I just hope that message goes to the CISOs and they're not thinking of just, you know, cutting yeah. the workforce and using tools only to, to kind of, you know, run the show. I think you're going to have a, a missing uh, a big security window there. Oh, I agree, 100%. Heck, let's take a quick break and have a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to encourage people to invest in themselves. BetterHelp wants to make sure everyone has easy, affordable, and private access to high-quality therapy. 
Since 2013, over 30,000 licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists from BetterHelp's network have helped more than 2 million people face life's challenges and improve their mental health. Like I told you guys last week, I signed up with BetterHelp. The initial process for signing up was really easy. I just filled out some questions about how I felt and my preferences on a therapist, what I wanted out of a therapist. And I was matched with a therapist that day. It was super easy to pick the type of communication I wanted with my match therapist. I could have either text, phone conversations, or a video chat. Then I was able to pick a day and time that was convenient for my schedule. My therapist has been very interactive, and BetterHelp makes these interactions very easy by sending me emails every time my therapist has a new message for me. BetterHelp is great at reminding me when the session is scheduled. It offers the ability for me to change my appointment if something pops up in my life. Hector, it really has been easy for me to schedule these appointments, and I'm, I'm very happy for it. I've had a great experience with BetterHelp. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I'm excited about this process and really happy to partner with BetterHelp on this podcast. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash H-A-T-F today and get 10% off your first month. Again, betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash H-A-T-F to get 10% off your first month. The next story you sent over to me, Hector, I really enjoyed reading through it, and it's uh, titled, Who Reads Your Emails? And so you sent me over a, a Twitter post, and, and I found that it, he, he put it into a blog post. Uh, I'm not going to try to mutilate his name. Can you tell me the name of the guy that put the, wrote this up? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to butcher his name either. because I know. Nah, but I, I, let's go with Jan Schaumann. Okay. Well, we'll put it in the show t- in the show descriptions, guys. Go there. We'll give you his Twitter and also his website is uh, netmiser.org and he labels himself an accidental infrastructure security architect. And this guy put together a really really good research paper about who who actually could have the ability to read your email. Yeah, it is it's a fantastic thread. I would recommend that folks definitely check it out. And even the blog post itself, it's so informative. I think it's going to be a very powerful insight into um, you know how email has become kind of centralized in a way. Yeah, if anybody looks into this and, and, and reaches out to to the writer, you know, let them know that you heard about the story on Hacker and the Fed. I'd love to have him on to talk about his research sometime because uh, he, he seems like a, a you know a great guy. So his article goes around and talks about that uh, there's around 330 billion emails sent every day around the world. Uh, this is approximately 3.82 million emails per second. It's a lot of emails. I mean, we, we've seen emails uh, grow exponentially. I thought it would slow down eventually, right? As we had more, as we introduced more technology like chat, live, real-time chat and so on. Um, but no, apparently email is a big thing still. And what I find fascinating about it is that <laughs> I'm going to take, a, I'm going to make a wager and say that most of that email is still spam and, you know, adverts. Probably. It's like looking at your mailbox, you know, you, you get one or two things in a, in a lot of advertisement in there, in your physical mailbox. And some of our listeners might not even know what I'm talking about. So there's paper that is delivered to your house with a stamp from a postal service, and that's called mail. But and anyways, uh, so email still goes after 40 years, it still goes in clear text protocol. Um, and there's no realistic solution for end-to-end encryption anytime soon. Or do you know of a catch-all end-to-end uh, encryption for, for email here? Well, I mean, there's alternatives, right? I mean, there is, um, you could use a GPG or PGP or any of those extensions uh, or, 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 or programs to, to kind of add encryption to your emails. But you have to set that up ahead of time with the person you're sending an email to. If you don't have that set up ahead of time, then you, you can't use it. You have to send your emails in plain text. Absolutely. And there's, there's all, uh, I would say, more recent alternatives. Google Workspace came out with something called client-side encryption or CSE. It would require that a Google Workspace administrator configure it on the domain, set up authentication, set up a, an identity management or manager. Um, but still, but still, that would mean that client-side encryption would happen between the employees within that domain. It wouldn't be like if I send you an email from my personal email 
to your email, the email will be encryption, right? Uh, or encrypted, sorry. Uh, so yeah, we don't have anything that encrypts email right off the bat, right from like the, the RFC, like right from the protocol. So uh, I completely agree with you there. There are options, but we're not really there yet for encrypted emails. Yeah, not not across, to, you know, industry-wide. Not everyone's going to be using that for a while, I don't think. He goes on to talk about how in 2023 that most of the time, you know, emails are handled by outside parties in the cloud like Google or Microsoft or Yahoo. And so what he did is he went through all the top-level domains. You know, this is, uh, I, I think there's like 300 and some odd top-level domains. Do you, do you happen to know? Yeah, there there is a, a bunch of GLTDs or generic top level domains. Um, there, I mean, they, they obviously make up like the the obvious .dot coms and um, .net .dot orgs, etc. Uh, to be honest with you, there are probably hundreds of GLTDs right now. I think at some point we're probably over a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred. Yeah. So he went through and he pulled out all the top level domains and he pulled out the domains in each one. Um, he came up with 203 million domain names, uh, 164 million alone in the .com, and then 39 million across all the others. And then he mapped approximately 30 million unique um, MX records. This is what Hector was talking about earlier, and the, the mail records, to all 203 million domains uh, and brought that into about 21 million uh, second-level domains. Um, and he found that 119 million domains, or about 58% of them, lacked an MX record. So that mail isn't even sent to an IP address. So of the 200, 203 million domains, 119 had no record where mail would be sent. And so he broke the numbers down from there a little further, Hector. And who do you think was the one are able to see our email? <laughs> well, I, I think it should be obvious to the audience. I think that Google was, is probably the biggest provider that sees most of our emails. That was the big winner. Google could probably see, and he breaks down the math and goes through the story. It's, it's a great read. Anybody wants to get the technical. Google can see probably about 41% of all mail that goes across the internet, e emails. That is insane when you think about the fact that all those plain text emails that are flying across space and you have a number or a handful of services that actually are being able to read, parse, and ingest all of that content. Microsoft's another 20%. So, I mean, that's that's roughly 60% of all plain text emails can be read by two companies. Wow. That is insane. I mean, that's the scary part. That's even if, if your domain doesn't use one of their mail servers, mm -hmm. chances are you're, the, the where you are sending the email does or is somehow connected to those. So... It's still reading your mail, even if you don't use either one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me say they're not reading it. I, I misspoke. They have the ability to read it. Yeah, I mean, they're still parsing the emails as, as, they're, as the emails are traveling through their, their mail exchange servers, right? Yeah. Um, and then at some point, since we know that they're doing anti-spam and anti-phishing and, and they're probably incorporating a, a whole bunch of other technologies there, um, they're definitely, at the very least, have to parse through the headers for the email and the content and links for the email. I'll give you an example. When we do phishing campaigns, we have to purposely block Gmail or Google IP addresses from accessing our landing pages because as soon as we send an email with a link to a target, Google will automatically open the link and then navigate it. And that navigation process does a few things. Maybe they're caching the link for uh, DNS users. Um, maybe they're caching the content for um, you know other services. But also they're scanning the content for malware and phishing contents. It's part of their anti-phishing strategy or anti-spam uh, anti strategy. But again, they're still parsing through this content. Now, when you think about the fact that Microsoft is also doing the same and Yahoo is doing the same, and almost every provider using the cloud is doing the same thing, I would you know, go out and say that most emails that are being sent or received are being parsed and read and ingested by one of these services. Now, if you are a privacy buff, that should probably make your the hairs in the back of your neck stance, right? It's also the argument as to why folks, security folks, are arguing against the use of SMS, right? SMS, very similar to, to um, SMTP in this case, or, or, or these emails, do travel across the wire in plain text. Something for all of you guys to really think about. 
So let me ask you this, though. With Google handling so much of this email, does that make them better at understanding email and email security? Uh, you know, as I sat here and thought about it, I was like, would I want a surgeon who does a particular surgery? He does it once or twice a year. Or do I want a guy who does this five times a week? You know, he knows this particular surgery. Or is that analogy just suck? No, it's a good analogy. I would rather have the surgeon who does it five times a week as well. So we have to look at it from a few different angles, right? If your concern is privacy, then the one thing you don't want to do is centralize your emails at a service provider like Google, which may or may not, and we cannot say for sure, but may or may not look at your email contents for the potential advertisement potential, right? Or, or uh, the potential to, to kind of elevate advertisement or elevate their own products, right? Whatever the products it could be, whether it's anti-spam or it's advertisements or something else. If, if privacy is your concern, then yeah, emails are probably not for you. If you're, if you're an organization and privacy is less of an issue for you um, from the, the business side of things, because your, your employees are not really sending sensitive information back and forth, then you, know, you would probably appreciate the fact that Google is able to handle so much mail and Google is probably able to identify bad emails more than or more likely than some of the other providers, right? So it, it really depends on where your angle is, where, where you stand on risk, and um, what you're willing to accept. So I understand the privacy side of things, but let's go to the security side of things. Are you in agreement that because Google handles so much and sees so many different types of emails and all that, that they, they can offer a pretty good security posture? They could add great security tools, and I know for a fact that they have been improving their, their anti-spam and anti-phishing detection. I know for a fact because as part of my job, um, part of my job rather is to kind of circumvent technical controls that are in use by the client. That includes Gmail, right? That includes their their email provider and whatever controls the email provider includes um, as part of the service. So I know for a fact that I've gotten emails into Gmail inboxes during a phishing campaign. But I also know for a fact that it's been harder for me to get emails into um, inboxes as well when I'm targeting Gmail. So yes and no. If you're relying on Gmail to provide you a security service, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. If you feel that Gmail does a, a, a good enough job, then that should be fine for you. But I always feel that, you know, aside from the technical controls, you always also want to have, you know, in-house training. You want to be able to provide training to your employees so that they're aware that even if an email is able to get past all of Google or Microsoft security tools or controls, that it would be able to identify a potential bad email as it comes in. So that's my take on it. That's a good point. I, I, I understand that. So I think you're right. I, I completely agree with what you said, and I probably couldn't say it better. I know I couldn't say it better. The next thing I sent over to you was this thing for uh, it was, the title of it is uh, Fake Chat GPT Chrome Browser Extension Caught Hijacking Facebook Accounts. Um, and it really just was something I wanted to share with the audience about, you know, when there's something flashy in the news like chat GPT and we don't really understand what it is and, and people will go to and Google it. And somebody had put up, you know, one of those fake Google ads. That, well, it was a real Google ad, but to a, a, a malicious site, which we, you know, we, we've talked about before to download this Chrome browser extension. And really the whole purpose of it was just to harvest, you know, Facebook account logins um, in order to take over Facebook accounts. Just be careful. It's really just a reminder just to be careful of what you're getting into out there. You know, it's great to do some research and figure out what's going on, uh, but also realize that cyber criminals are very opportunistic and they're really just doing this just to exploit you. And they're using, you know, this, this new thing that's in the media a lot out there. Yeah, I mean, this happens with almost anything that's that's hot in the news. You're 100% right, Chris. Um, attackers are opportunistic. Uh, we've seen that over the last you know 20 odd episodes where we talk about different topics like supply chain attacks and and you know uh, code repositories. Um, we've seen uh, similar attacks when you know a, a certain restaurant is getting a lot of buzz, and you may have. A man in the middle scenario where a, a company you know registers a domain that looks like the restaurant, and then they'll set up an advertisement campaign, and they just be a proxy between orders. The same would be uh, the same would apply to this case of OpenAI's ChatGPT. The one thing I would tell folks is you don't need a Chrome extension, you don't need an extra third party 
uh, software or uh, addition or app, you can just go to OpenAI itself directly and and access the the service there. You know, there's a lot of bad guys out there. They're always looking for the next come up, and you don't want to be someone's come up, especially you know uh, a low hanging fruit attack that's just going to cause you headaches. It's not worth it. Yeah, completely agree. And then the last one, Hector, is uh, a shout out to some guys I used to work with. Uh, the title of the story is. UK National Crime Agency sets up fake DDoS for hire sites to catch cyber criminals. So uh, you know uh, from the case uh, that I worked uh, with you, um, that I worked with the UK National Crime Agency uh, over there in uh, England. And uh, these guys set up some fake websites um, that are still out there and running that were for DDoS for hire. Um, Have you seen these DDoS for hire sites? Yeah, man, these sites, they, you know, I'm surprised this, this is even a thing in 2023. Um, for those of you that don't know, they have these sites, you can, you can sign up, log in and pay for the service of knocking other websites offline. It's basically, you know, uh, for hire, distributed and out of service. Sometimes it's called booting services or booter services or stressor services. I mean, again, I, Chris, I'll be honest with you. I feel like the not of service or DDoS is so early 2000s. I, I'm surprised that people are still doing this. I agree with you. I don't think hackers too much are using this service. I think these are for like the guys that are trying to get those those high-end sneakers. I know they use it in that world. Uh, I know a couple guys in that world that, that where you have to get on and try to to bid and get on real quick to get the get the sneakers. They use it. I know gamers used to use it to to boot people off games. I don't know if they're doing that so so much now, but but anything that requires you to log into a website quickly uh, in order to get access to it, I think, you know, it's sort of kind of into that world. Yeah, it reminds me of a story. I'm going to bring it back. I, I, don't, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to talk about LawSec too much, but there was that one story. There was a guy that was practically begging to join LawSec. Um, he was from North Carolina or Michigan or somewhere. And um, he was, like, obsessed with joining the group. And the moment we gave him like one inch, he immediately started leaking logs. But that guy, his his whole shtick was he wasn't necessarily a hacker. He was one of these stressor guys. And so I think that what he used to do to make money, he was sending threatening emails out to companies like, hey, um, if you don't pay me or my team X um, amount in crypto, then we would like shut down your website. Um, do you remember that guy? Remember that story? I don't remember him. I remember the guy overseas that that had the botnet for that used for DDoS, but not not this guy. Yeah, yeah, it it was kind of like a a bump in the road kind of uh, a character. But you know, even back then, even back then, I found it fascinating that people were doing that, like that extortion DDoS for extortion thing. I know gamers did it for quite a while, but this story was interesting to me when I read about it. I read it. uh, You sent me the link. I was so shocked by the number of people actually involved in that community. I know. It's big. It's like thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So the NCA set up this Operation Power Off. Um, they uh, set up fake websites. And when people logged in to buy the, the, the booter or the stressor service, you know, they got their information. And now they're going to be charged with crimes. You know, and they got thousands of people logging in from all over the world for these services. And apparently their sites are still up there. You know, so be careful. I mean, I think it would be tipped off pretty quick if you logged in and nothing happened. Like you didn't get see the DDoS happen. But for somehow they're they're still keeping it up there and people logging in and and grabbing their information. <laughs> Imagine, you know, I, listen, I, this is for the audience here. It's a personal story. I felt like a complete dork when I was sitting in a, in, in MCC, which is. Uh, which, you know, it's, it's a jail. It's basically a maximum. And it was it's kind of the place in between sentencing and, and it, some folks actually did their time there. It, it's literally federal jail. It's, it's, it's where you go once you've been arrested, but you haven't gone through trial yet. It's in the downtown Manhattan uh, and famous people have been arrested and, and went there. And I think the most famous would be Epstein. Well, Epstein, right? That's where he died. You also had John Gotti was there. Yep. I personally played chess with Jimmy the Henchman. For you guys uh, interested in the life of Tupac, Jimmy the Henchman was allegedly involved in the first shooting of Tupac in New York. And I played chess. And by the way, I beat the shit out of him in chess. So big shout out to him for losing. Is he still in jail? Oh, he's doing life. So I could talk shit. Oh, that's why you're bringing that up. Yeah. So uh, so I'm sitting there and I'm talking to folks and they're telling me their stories. Hey, my name is so-and-so and here's what I did. 
And I felt like a complete dork that when it was my time to kind of say what I was there for, it was like, yeah, I'm a hacker. Yeah. Um, imagine these guys getting locked up or getting extradited. What the fuck are they going to say? Yeah, I, I signed up for a website to like boot people off the internet. Are you a hacker? No, not really. But I was soliciting. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe here in the States, it may be just a misdemeanor, but it's still, you know, it's still a thing. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's pretty bugged out. Um, and, and I guess for the kids in the audience, don't do what I did. That was such a stupid freaking uh, um, experience. Oh, let me tell you another story in case you guys are curious, right? So when I first went in, I had a massive beard. I looked like I looked like a, a crazy person. And I had like, you would have these these entourages of different races that come and check you out. So the first the first group of people that came to me were, you know, just a, a group of Dominicans and they were kind of curious as to who I was and what I was there for and and what was my race. And then and that, that, that went pretty smooth. They were cool. They brought me some clothes, big shout out to them. Um, they brought me like sweatpants and sweatshirts, a hoodie, not a hoodie, but like a sweatshirt. And one of the guys actually had a he had somebody smuggled in a white tee, which you can't have in there, like a white t shirt. Um, it was too big for him. He was willing to give it to me. That was great. But then the other group that came to me were like the cartel members. <laughs> and um, a lot of them from Colombia, a few from Mexico. And they came to me because one of the guys recognized me. Apparently in Colombia, there's like a like a weekly, uh, kind of like a, like a magazine, kind of like a New York mag type of thing. And in that magazine, lo and behold, you had my goofy face in there from when I got arrested. And uh, it talked about how I would attack the Colombian police force or the Peruvian government. And I uh, basically attacked several uh, government agencies across South America. And so these guys came, they're like, listen, we think you're you're great. <laughs> Keep up the good work. By the way, here's a bunch of food. So they brought me like Vienna sausages and like bread and cheese and, uh, and you know, sausages and all that crazy stuff. But yeah, it, it was a crazy time. So for the audience... It might sound like I had a great time there, but trust me, it's not worth it. You don't want to go in there. I, I was scared to go in there every time I went in there. The the one thing I would say is that, like, and this is why I bring up the story. Again, I felt like such a dork that I was in there for hacking. Imagine what these guys are going to go through. I, I think you said it, it might be a misdemeanor here. I, that's just a guess. I don't, I mean, I, I can't see where you're just soliciting services like that is, is more than a misdemeanor, but. If, if any of those guys have to get locked up, I can't imagine the embarrassment. It is going to be extremely embarrassing. I don't know. I'd be embarrassed to be locked up for anything, but that's a different world for me. You know what? That's very true. That's a good point. Anyways, Hector, I think we've reached that time where I got to tell this story about me pissing my pants in a search warrant. So uh, let me see if I can try to get through this. Ooh, let's go. Let's get uh, it. The audience, again, really responded to this. Uh, Tom, he thought I was dressed up in a chicken suit. I was definitely not dressed up in a chicken suit. Um, I was dressed up like a fed with my cargo pants and, uh, and, and FBI shirt on and all that. So, um, so it was, I think it was definitely winter time. Uh, I probably say January, February, and we flew out to Oklahoma city because Oklahoma city needed help. Um, they had a large like healthcare fraud takedown. Um, it included, you know, hospitals and hundreds of different doctors and one of those things that had to be taken down all at the same time me and a friend of mine named aaron great guy i think he's still in the fbi i think he's out in like indianapolis or something we were assigned to go to a uh, doctor's house uh to execute a search warrant um out out in sort of uh the boonies kind of you know kind of out past the city limits but it was a beautiful house the house was probably 10 to twelve thousand square feet it had hidden rooms in it, like where you're like, this doesn't make sense. There should be a room here. And we'd walk along and press and like this wall, like behind a bookcase um, would open up and, uh, and there'd be things in there. And so it was a pretty cool house. But um, one thing you never do as an FBI agent is you never pee inside someone's house. You don't use the bathroom in there um, because you never know if there's cameras or what, what's going to be in there, or what you're going to be accused of, but mostly the cameras. You don't want to show up on the internet, you know, in your FBI garb and, um, you know, dressed up as, you know, in, in what you're supposed to have on, you know, holding yourself out, uh, I'll say, in, in a nice way, Hector. So, a uh, long day. We were probably there for probably 12 hours. 
Um, we drank uh, in, you know, water to keep hydrated and keep going, doing the whole thing. Huge house, a lot of searching, a lot of collecting of evidence. Again, you didn't pee. You never peed. So Aaron and I had a big van uh, and a bunch of evidence. And so uh, we pulled, it was, you know, probably 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And things had been frozen over. Um, it, again, it was in the winter time. And we pulled out of the driveway with this big van. And across the street, there was kind of like a, a, a little open field. Um, so I decided to back up into the field in the van. Aaron stayed in the van, kind of pointed down into traffic, but it was up on a hill. Um, I went around behind the back of the van and I started taking a pee. Um, I had to go so bad. I hadn't gone for 12 hours. I drank a lot of water and it was just, it was rough. As I was leaning up against the van and started peeing, the van started sliding. I had parked on a frozen driveway. No. And, yep. Aaron, <laughs> w- Aaron was in the van and the, he was in the passenger seat and I, and, and the van was sliding down into oncoming traffic. It was going to be T-boned. And so I had to make a decision. Do I keep peeing um, like a normal person would, or do I put myself away uh, and then try to jump in the van and steer the van into safety? A lot of thoughts back and forth, and I finally decided on uh, putting myself away and jumping into the van and saving my buddy Aaron and all this evidence. But uh, from that, I uh, then continued peeing because I don't know anyone who can stop once they get going, and I peed down, right down the leg of my pants. Um, so now we're in this van that's got, it's sort of hot from body heat and the heater running and cold outside and the windows are steaming up and it just smells like hot piss. Oh no. So gross. Pretty embarrassing. And again, remember I'm a visitor. I just, we flew out there just to help them. Um, and a lot of search sites, a lot of all over the town. So they, you know, the FBI rents this big warehouse and we pull into the warehouse with our van of evidence and there's probably 500 agents standing there. Um, and I got this pissed out of my leg. You know, I can spend the next two hours of all of them walking up to you and be like, what's going on with your pants? What's going on with your pants? I decided to get ahead of it. I don't know why, if it, maybe this was the, the stupidity of youth. Um, but I stood up there and I said, excuse me, everyone, excuse me. And I had 500 FBI agents turn around and take a look at me. And I said, yes, I did piss my pants. Um, and it was quite obvious looking at me, but I also saved my buddy's life. I don't think they believe me on the save of my life, but they definitely noticed that I had pissed my pants. Uh, and then the smart guy who from out of town then decided to tell everyone. Um, <laughs> it didn't go over so well. Uh, no one wanted to be around me for the rest of the day because I really stunk like that. Like that urine that you've, you've saved for 12 hours. You know that, that pungent smell? Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I'm sure I got a nickname. Um, I got the hell out of there as quickly as I can. Um, <laughs> hopefully no one listening to this is connecting back and be like, oh, my God, that I guy on the that. podcast is the guy that pisses pants. <laughs> so but that's my embarrassing FBI search warrant piss my pants story. Well, there's a couple of things you confirmed there. At the very okay. least, you know, for a long time, 4chan had the kind of uh, that slang, you know, where – um, if you did something wrong or you said something specific that uh, would trigger the FBI, you would look out the window and see the party van. So you actually did have a van. We did have a van, big white van. There you go. <laughs> so, but it was used to collect evidence. I got you. I got you. So so for the folks out there that know exactly what I'm talking about, yes, it is confirmed that the FBI does have party vans, apparently. I understand being in that position. I've been in that position before, bro, and I get it. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that you're willing to share that with the audience. Because it shows that you're you're actually a human being, and I, I do appreciate that tale, that story. I do pee, yes. <laughs> Out of uh, all your years with with the FBI and law enforcement and so on, was that the first and last time you peed yourself, or you peed your pants? I definitely can't say it's the last time, and it definitely wasn't <laughs> the first time. But that may be the only time I've announced it to such a large group. There you go. <laughs> so, but that, those are stories for a different day. Yeah. So. Again, if you guys want to ask questions about us and peeing our pants or anything else, uh, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector and I love answering user uh, listener questions, so please reach out to us. New episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, please share the podcast. We want to grow the podcast. we we got great numbers, uh, but we just want to make it bigger and bigger. So please share on social media that you love the show. Um, cause we have a lot of loyal listeners based on all the emails that came in and want to hear that story, <laughs> you know, share with uh, your friends that you, you love the show. Uh, you know, here's some security things. If someone has, you know, get somebody involved, have them send a question and we'll answer their question. 
um, either on the show or we will respond in an email. Uh, I like to, if we're not going to use the, your question on the show, I like to respond to you as much as I can. Um, so you'll probably see an email off from me. So, yeah. And the one thing I'll point out is that, uh, you know, Chris and I, we, we kind of do this on our own. We don't have like, uh, I know some shows have like interns or they have like producers that kind of collect stories. If you see an interesting story, you guys want us to kind of touch one, please shoot us an email and we'll go through it from our perspectives as a former bad guy and as a, you know, as a, as a good guy. And uh, we'll give our perspective and then share some, some of our experiences for sure. Great episode, Hector. Really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to next week. Absolutely, my friend. Uh, we'll talk soon. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers.